Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. This is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show, we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more. Plank the second to help you write better. And plank the third to help you be a little bit happier while you do those things. On today's episode, I'm going to look at a listener's first page and suggest some ways they can make it better. Yes, that's it. I've bowed to public pressure. Let's not faff about. Let's do some close reading, some heavy editing. Let us read together and find hidden imperfections in something we previously thought was all right. It's kind of like a relationship in that regard. And before we begin, I just want to say my purpose with these first pages is not to make you impossibly self-critical to the point where you can't write. Many, many listeners have given me feedback to the effect... I listened to your podcast and suddenly I could see a whole bunch of problems with my writing. And, you know, that's good in a way. They often sound very chipper when they tell me that. Because, you know, it does mean your taste is improving. Your standards are improving. That's part of getting good at a thing. But only if you then feel empowered and motivated to go on and fix those problems, make the necessary changes, and get your writing super ripped and punchy. If listening to a critique like the one I'm about to do paralyses you, if it makes the voices in your head saying there's no point starting because you'll never be good enough even louder, you really need to stop, step away from the audio device upon which you're listening to me, and do something nice for yourself. That is my official quality of life well-being warning before I begin. Some of the principles of composition and style and structure discussed in these episodes are absolutely amenable to being internalised. That is, you can sort of turn them into algorithms or processes in your head and they start to inform how you write and your first drafts come out a, a little bit better straight away by incorporating those ideas right off the bat. But, and that's a capital but, most writing mistakes are mistakes you will we will repeatedly make. And the business of getting better is not about reducing the number of mistakes, but learning how to catch them after the fact. If you think that each time you spot something in your writing that you could have done better, that is somehow a mark of failure, that in doing so it reflects badly on you, you are wrong. You are incorrect, fundamentally Incorrect, actually. It's counterintuitive, but spotting errors, that's you being good at writing, right? You know, dreadful writers can't see flaws in their own work. Good writers can. Let me repeat that, because I think this is very important, and it's something I've struggled with, not just in the distant past, but recently. Dreadful writers can't see flaws in their own work. Good writers can. Got it? The better you get at writing, the better you will get at spotting bits in your sentences and stories that could be improved. The bar's going to be higher, your standards are going to be higher, so you'll have the dispiriting or at least unnerving experience of feeling like you're getting worse because your perception of your work compared to your standards is going to drop. 
yes, blah, blah, Dunning-Kruger effect, and yes, please don't write to me telling me that some recent research has challenged the universality or validity of the Dunning-Kruger effect either. That's super cool, but I'm familiar with the area. I've read a lot of research. I'm, I'm getting slightly sick of it now. The thank you. Um, I didn't mean to sound grumpy. Uh, it's lovely when people write to me, but uh, I, I, I know already to save you the trouble. But look, the basic if one thinks about it, thundering, the obvious takeaway from all of this is that the better you get at recognising and diagnosing problems in your writing, the more likely you are to find them, and thus the higher the local density of problems will be when you come to look at your work. Therefore, getting better feels like getting worse. And, 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 and that is a mode of engaging with our own writing that you, you won't always want to have switched on. I would suggest that being better at breaking down and criticising your art isn't intrinsically a better way of being in the world. And it's certainly not universally better as a perceptual lens when you're creating work, especially in a first draft. It's a tool and it has some super cool, super useful applications. I, I think in many ways it's it's more or less necessary and at other times, it actively hampers your ability to create. Seriously, this is me going full Jacob Marley here, jangling my chains oh self-criticism. I am incapable of writing consistently in a style I know is good, that I know is what I want my writing to sound like, that I know makes sense and that other people will read and go, this is wicked, right? Like, th that is the flat truth. I, I, I cannot do it. That's impossible for me. If that's the standard, I, I won't be able to write. Even these words, what I am saying to you now, I know that by my actual standards, they're clumsy, they have too many qualifiers and asides and parenthetical clauses modifying the central thrust of what I'm saying, the sentences run on too long, the register crunches between gears in annoying and jarring ways, and I, I mix my metaphors. I, I, I know all that, and I don't always like how I say the words, I don't always like the sound of my voice, I don't always like my delivery and when I stumble over words, and, and I know that when I'm speaking extemporaneously, I have a tendency to use lots of fillers such as like and you know and um. They fill and expand my monologues like so many pernicious dandelions. But if I tried to fix all of these things in advance of opening my mouth, if I made not committing any of those aesthetic evils and minor compositional and oratorical peccadilloes a condition of doing this podcast, I simply would not do it. I, I couldn't do it. I would never have been able to communicate with you. I would never have been able to have the hundred plus hours of interviews that I've conducted with other authors. I would have never been able to connect, create the courses that I've made. I wouldn't be able to do anything if I made that the standard. I'm not skilled enough to catch all those issues in advance or, you know, indeed, afterwards, some of the stuff I work out and tweak, but not all of it. I don't have the time. And I, I'm not when I write either. You know, I can't do it in advance. I probably can't do it on my own afterwards as well. I've never handed in a perfect script, which sucks because it means to a certain extent when I write, I know I'm doing something that isn't up to my standards and that can feel like a bad 
parody of writing. I feel ashamed sometimes because when I write, I don't feel like a writer. I'm not making prose or formulating ideas I feel proud of, that I would want to show to people, that I would want to get out and say, this is so much better than any... <laughs> this is significantly better than the average person could do, and this is actually worth people exchanging money, giving me currency, giving me money that I can use to pay for food and shelter and energy bills because I've arranged words in a way that's so superlatively good that it's worth other people's money that they've earned via their labour, right? That's that's the claim that you're making. Often the voice I write in can feel to me at least overly pompous or vague, too wordy, unclear. Maybe it's unoriginal or a bit unkind or cruel in a way I feel embarrassed of or you know if somebody called me out on it I would go yeah actually that was I was trying to make a joke but actually that sounds a bit mean or it seems like a bit arrogant seem seem like a bit of a dick when I say that maybe I, I feel like I'm being a show-off or a plagiarist or incredibly boring or crass or irrelevant I, I've had all of those thoughts about my writing and the density of them the frequency of them necessarily increases when I sit down and I write because then I'm confronted with it the reality of what comes out when I try to make sentences and it's not enough for people to tell me and I suspect that your experience may be similar it's not enough to be told don't worry about these issues you know, and I don't think that that would necessarily help you on its own for me to say, don't worry about these things. I don't want to be like, no, you're actually brilliant. Let rip and the genius will flow like wine. It probably won't. Many of those issues may be present in the text. Sometimes haters gonna make some valid points not that the judgments about your character you know that you're a dick that you're crap at what you do that you're stupid for trying those are just cruelty and not fair at all and I think they're worth dismissing out of hand as nonsense unhelpful labels over generalizations they just don't hold up to scrutiny but it is likely that, yes, some bits are unnecessarily wordy and you repeated yourself and it could be cut down. Maybe a description is unclear. Maybe part of it feels just a bit bland and empty. Another bit might be rather abstract or vague. Maybe something you meant to be serious comes off as unintentionally absurd. I don't know. All of those things are things I frequently wrestle with in my own work. I can't maintain the fantasy image of Tim Clare, the great author, when I write. I've never felt less like a writer than when I write. That identity is put under threat when I write. What an irony, eh? When I write, I feel least like a writer. What? You know, you can tell there must be something wrong there. And I don't think I'm alone in that tension and that struggle. 
but I also don't think it's intrinsic, inevitable and insoluble. I think it's amenable to working on. It seems healthy to me for us to find a way to look at the problems, shortcomings and mistranslations of our work right in the face, to turn towards them and apprehend them honestly without making them an inventory of our own self-worth or the lack thereof. We're not evaluating, we're not evaluating our, our skills as writers when we sit down to edit work. The question I'd ask is why, what are you hoping to achieve by continually running a kind of diagnostic test on this abstract idea of how good you are as an author? I, I would suggest that doesn't really help us with the task at hand, which is making the text better. What we do is we take the sentence, we take the paragraph, we take the scene as a whole, and at the macro, micro level, we go, what is working, what isn't working, and how can we improve it? Whether you're a good or bad writer, I'd suggest is not a helpful question. It's a very broad question. It's a poorly framed question. It's a little bit intellectually embarrassing for someone to be asking that seriously. And I, I think we can just safely say that's not a sensible or worthwhile use of our time. And the only way we can get to any text at all, after all, the only way we can start the process is to write a first draft. This is where I'm going with this, okay? To make sketches. I, I really recommend you check out artists working in other media, by the way, you know, like design or painting, where they're breaking down their process so you can see the rough sketches, the concept art, the beginnings of stuff, and the visual scaffolding they lay down before they get to the fantastic, luscious, detailed end stages. Design's a particularly good one because there's less of a culture around the pretense of perfection, at least in my experience. You'll see pages with 20, 40, 50 rough prototypical versions of a logo or a font or maybe a building, you know, lots looking quite different, uh, some looking very bizarre, detailed studies of just one corner or edge, others minutely iterating on the previous design next to it. It's like, try it this way. Okay, now try it this way. What if we tweak this bit here? What if this part was a bit longer, a bit flatter or sharper or loopier? What if it was completely, utterly different? The point to take away from this isn't that art is a continual, endlessly complex process of granular refinement, though it can be, but that to start making progress, these artists had to get something on paper. And yes, even though their prototypical designs and concept art often look pretty sick, often they're also just super rough impressions in pencil. It's not about just forcing stuff onto the page at speed with no idea where it's going or why. I'm not pushing for the other extreme. There's something to be said about checking out the lie of the green and selecting the right club before you take your shot. But ultimately, it's important to remember that writing can be a slow process. And if you have standards and you want to do it well, it will be slower still. Looking upon your work and feeling that it's in some way inadequate, incomplete, not communicating quite what you'd hoped is not a sign that you're failing. Quite the contrary. It's a sign that you have taste. You're capable of critical reflection and you care about your reader's experience. 
Just know that it's not a condemnation of you personally that you have written an imperfect sentence, nor does it suggest necessarily that you're a bad writer. Good writing necessitates the ability to spot bad writing. Just don't confuse self-loathing with craft. Don't think that reflexively saying that you hate your work means you've got good taste. There is a process to this and there is an order to it and there is a means of skillful and unskillful application of these principles. And if you are not writing in the first place, there's nothing to edit. Therefore, you know, as your capacity to self-criticise improves, you will experience that sense that your work is inadequate more often. The challenge is to not let the understandable and entirely human disappointment that ensues stop you from continuing your work, from writing in an exploratory, playful and messy way, from nurturing the side of you that seeks to become absorbed in the act of creation and imagination. I do not pretend that squaring this circle, that balancing these two competing interests of inching towards perfection and breaking new ground and exploring, being kind to yourself while holding yourself accountable. This tension is my entire life and I do not find it easy. And different authors position themselves at different points along what I would suggest is a kind of bipolar spectrum of conscientiousness versus openness to trying new things. Right? There's an inherent precarity to the creative process. A point where you've taken a few steps out onto the bridge of the one hair and now you're suspended by that gossamer strand above a chasm. Over the past year I've struggled to exist in that precarity. I've had things going on in my life that have made me want comfort and a feeling of mastery and control. I've wanted to feel the ground beneath my feet. I've wanted people to see me and what I do and say, look, there's Tim Clare, the writer. He knows what he's doing. A somewhat unlikely exclamation, I'll grant you, but there it is. Writing especially creative writing, especially creative writing that moves and dances and surprises is not a good practice to undertake if you crave a sense of mastery. Those who do feel a sense of mastery have succumbed, I suspect, to a deep conservatism and have learned to, as it were, dance pleasingly on the spot rather than venturing into the dark forest of the imagination. When I was in Finland last, We ate dinner on someone's back porch at the edge of a forest and they told me that woodsmen would cut down the crooked trees at the edges of the woods so they could cultivate tall straight trees for lumber. As a consequence, the deeper you head into the forest, the older and more twisted the trees become. That's the challenge we take on when we write, so to speak, with the whole of ourselves, with our mind and our heart and our guts, and yes, quite possibly with our todger, or whatever we happen to have equipped in the old groin chakra, mini gun, cigarette lighter, charging port, grimacing blue skull, 
door to the fairy realm to head into the deep woods where the trees grow twisted and to see what lies there. Writing is rarely dignified, unfortunately, and not often in the moment of composition flattering, but it can be fun, absorbing, surprising and pleasurable. If we can let go of having to get anywhere with it, if we can permit ourselves to just write what we write and then go back later with our sieve or our hedge clippers or whatever metaphor you want to use, we'll find exciting, promising lines, angles of approach, little scenes or runs where we were onto something. And then we can engage in the next part of the process, transforming those and thinking how we might use them to tell the story we're interested in telling. So that's all just the framing I want to set up before I read out today's extract, which was taken from the, at the time of recording, relatively new Death of a Thousand Cuts Discord server. This is a place where listeners of the podcast can go industry. So far, it's a nice manageable size and everyone there seems friendly, supportive and kind. But with the possible exception of me, no, I try to be those things as well. But certainly everyone else is... um being super cool and it's lovely to see there's a link in the show notes to today's episode if you'd like to join yourself if you don't know what a discord is and it sounds a bit intimidating you can always google it but basically discord is just an app that was originally created for gamers that's now been sort of taken on by wider communities that allows text voice and video chat i found it very intimidating when i started using it which sounds silly but i've been using it for a few years now and we're currently just using it as a kind of private forum for talking about creative writing. So you download the app and then you log onto that forum and it will show you some different potential little threads on different subjects and you can go in and you can type in text messages. That's it really. It's very, very simple and basic. And it looks mostly like the web forums that we were using 20 years ago. 20 years ago? Gosh, that is a long time. I'm planning at some stage in the future to test the waters on whether folks might fancy my running the occasional creative writing workshop over voice chat, little one or two hour writing sessions together. I'll see if there's interest for that, but for now, it's just mainly text. Right, in any case, here's the extract, and it's called Original Story, and it's by Toe Thumb. They wandered the cradle of humanity for generations. Now they found themselves in a large valley that they called Eden. In Eden, it always felt like a warm spring day. A small stream provided cool, clean water, and there was always fruit dangling from trees. Before Adam and Eve, there was never a reason to leave this place. Eve envied the round, bulging stomachs of her sisters and cousins. She wanted to feel that kick from inside. Each time her sister Lilith encouraged her to feel it kick, it felt like the baby kicked her directly in her flat stomach. She even yearned for the pain of childbirth, but giving birth was not in the stars for Eve, so as she grew older, she spent more time alone. Eve forced a finger-whipped acacia stick against the wrist-wide baobab branch. While holding pressure, she moved back and forth at the rhythm of her breath. She faced the west to see the sun sinking below the horizon. Firm calluses had now replaced the blisters that had pained her a month ago. Eve, does it hurt to me, but I'm getting used to it. Twine held a clump of dried grass at the end of the branch to catch the tiny coal Eve hoped to produce. Blow on the grass, it needs help breathing, Eve said. 
Adam leaned into the wad of dry grass. Thick grey smoke emerged as Adam blew. Eve quickened her thrusts. The smoke flashed over to a bright flame. Okay, so here are my thoughts. They wandered the cradle of humanity for generations. Now they found themselves in a large valley that they called Eden. So I have no desire to become predictable, to fall into a parody of myself, but until the entirety of the writing world has been broken and submits beneath my yoke, I'm going to keep on saying it. These opening two lines do not work for me. Totham, you're a fantastic, worthwhile human being, I have no doubt, and there's some neato writing coming up in this extract. But regardless, this bit sucks ass to the point of prolapse. It's bad, is what I'm saying. Here's why. It's incredibly abstract. They wandered the cradle of humanity for generations. So they, at this point, is undefined. Wandered, you sort of mean metaphorically, in the sense that they were nomadic, I presume. The cradle of humanity is just an unpacked bit of shorthand. I'm assuming, though I'm not sure, because it's not clear from any of this, that you're referring to Africa. That's generally known as the cradle of humanity, although some readers might not know that. Then you have the abstract concept generations. They want they wandered the cradle of humanity, so three undefined, vague, semi-metaphorical concepts there, um, for generations. So, it, so if it's generations, then it means that we discover at the end of the sentence that the they from the start isn't even stable. It refers to a group or tribe over multiple generations. So then we have to go back to revise our understanding of they. Like, presumably, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of this I'm having to fill in, and I realise that first sentence cannot contain all the evidence and confirmation of its own content, right? It exists ex nihilo. We're having to make some assumptions, some stuff we won't immediately know. But it's confusing because you then, you know, you go on to borrow familiar names and places from biblical myth. Adam, Eve, Eden, Lilith. So we've got this extremely heavy-handed intertextuality, these hammer blows. The story's clubbing us over the head with it at this point. But at the same time, this appears to be an independent or distinct story from what we know in the Bible. So some of our biblical knowledge is not going to help us, or at least it's going to be unreliable, right? So that's confusing. I'm immediately stuck between super super abstract description and then these names and places that carry an intense amount of cultural freight maybe some of the most overdetermined names in the english language why did they call the valley eden I, I, it's something I'd like to know because this might be a science fiction story, right? The, these characters we're now meeting might be planetary colonists and they might be calling the Valley Eden, uh, as many spacefarers do in SF stories, as a callback to the Bible. They might have given themselves biblical names. That ha happens in one of Roger Zelazny's stories, except that they all name themselves after, I think, deities from the hindu pantheon that's in the lord of light it, it's been done quite a few times and i don't know what genre this is next at the moment right so otherwise why is this a significant moment that you're telling us about why have they chosen these names and why did they call this place this particular name i, I don't know and i find it confusing i don't know why you're leading with it these are just two such 
broad scene-setting sentences. There's no juice to them, no flavour or texture. They're conceptual, triangulating bits of sort of easing your story into the parking bay. And it's that bit at the end, a large valley that they called Eden, that particularly grates for me because it's like you're off in the wings playing dark chords on a church organ. Eden. We all know what that means. Air readers. In Eden, it always felt like a warm spring day. Thrilling ratcheting up of the stakes here. You're using your third sentence to emphasise that things are nice in vague anodyne language. It's just a, a warm spring day. Spring where? Spring where? Like, if it always feels like spring to these people living here, then how do they have a concept of seasons, or even what warm is, relatively speaking, since they've nothing to compare it to, since the weather is apparently completely, completely the same every day? I don't really know how stuff grows here. Is this magical? I don't know if this is a magical story or not. And what are we doing in this habitual time? We're, we're not even on a specific day yet. We're just being presented with this undifferentiated mass of nice, balmy days that exist, apparently. Here they are, on block, a job lot of days in which absolutely nothing of note occurred. There was, by definition, nothing story-worthy at all during this amorphous, lard-like mass of warm days. So, so why... Why do we front-load the story with this? Why open here, going, it was lovely and nice. Once upon a time, fuck all happened. The days were nice and they were always nice. Dot, dot, dot. In hell, county. See, that's the thing. Like, I realise you're hoping we'll be all like, uh-oh, this won't last long because it's in Eden. And they're called Adam and Eve. But I just don't feel that urgency at all. I read this and I feel like, where's the story? Why start here? And right away, the next sentence we have, a small stream provided cool, clean water and there was always fruit dangling from trees. The birds were singing, the sun was shining. OK, so I made up that next two bits. But I mean, this is so textureless, so nothingy. There was always fruit dangling from trees. Fruit? What fruit? Pick a fucking fruit. Pick multiple fruits. Give us how they look and feel and taste. Do they take time to ripen? Where do the different fruits grow? Do some hang low over the stream? Are there sweet figs crawling with wasp larvae? Tender blushing peaches moist with the dew of the morning? Raspberry patches? Where's Adam's favourite place to go and pick nectarines? What are the different pleasures and challenges of eating a banana, a coconut, a pineapple? Like... Fruit is going to become pretty fucking central to the Adam and Eve story, I presume. Just giving us generic fruit, quote, dangling, end quote, from generic trees is like Michelangelo writing the word God in green crayon on the ceiling and calling it a day. Crunchy specificity, Totham. I, I know the story of Eden. We all know it, more or less. We can all go, oh yeah, it was nice, warm, clean water, nice fruit. That's the prototypical chassis for the concept of Eden, the least effort way of describing it. What I want, what I need, is your particular Eden. Lived in, dirty, real, specific smells, tastes, sounds, and, and not one that the characters would quote always hear. One's that they hear now, in this exact moment, in the narrative present. Before Adam and Eve, there was never a reason to leave this place. So this is still a dry, not especially emotionally arresting sentence, but at least, for the first time, we have a bit of tension. 
My general prescription is that everything up to and including this sentence should be led through a series of narrow channels into an abattoir and humanely destroyed. But for the sake of demonstrating a broad principle of composition, try to think about the syntax of your sentences. That is the order in which you deliver the words to us, your readers, and aim to end with the most arresting, important part of the sentence. So if you can, you can put the second most interesting, sensational and memorable part of the sentence at the beginning. This is called the primacy recency effect and I've talked about it before and I dare say I'll continue going on about it until the end of time because there are always new people who could perhaps use a refresher. But in this case, for our purposes, I'd suggest it would be enough to switch the order of the two clauses in this sentence so it becomes, there was never a reason to leave this place before Adam and Eve. So you've got your main clause, it's a negation of a concept and not particularly vivid. There was never a reason. But that aside, abstract negation, not, both of those are black marks against it, which is why I'd cut it. But if we were going to go with it, you know, you've got your main clause and then you come in at the end to undermine it with your adverbial subclause before Adam and Eve. So that's us repeating Dickens' old Marley was dead to begin with which would be a much less effective and funny opener if he'd written, to begin with, Marley was dead. In fact, the above, what I just said, is a great example of why it's important to attend to the spirit of a compositional principle rather than the letter of it. Clearly, in the previous sentence, dead is a more arresting word than with to end a sentence with. There's just no contest. But it's better to tee up with named character and their state, Marley was dead, than catch us with the twist at the end. Because to say, to begin with, as a way of opening the story, like we have no context for what that adverbial clause is modifying. So it's not a it's not a very interesting way of opening a story. And even as I say this, I can imagine an opening sentences that do actually begin with, to begin with, that I wouldn't hate. To begin with, Elwyn was pleased the dragon had come to stay. I'm not sure I like that less than Elwyn was pleased that the dragon had come to stay. To begin with, it's not that the latter is, is, is terribly bad, it's just, I guess, with a longer clause explaining something a bit more complex. In this case, we have a named character, Elwyn, they have a dragon for a guest. I, I'd prefer to close on the concept rather than the qualifier. Also, I guess in this new context, the idea that one would be pleased that a dragon had come to stay is the actual surprising part. That's the undercutting part. That's the part of the sentence that springs up and hits the reader and makes them go, ooh, not that such a visitor might outstay their welcome. So to begin with doesn't really undermine or give us an interesting twist. We, we can absolutely imagine a dragon outstaying their welcome. So actually by closing the sentence on the main clause, we're emphasising the surprise. To begin with, Elwyn was pleased the dragon had come to stay. Oh, hmm, interesting. OK, just just some examples there. I guess what I'm emphasising here, the reason I'm sort of making up the this hypothetical story is that there are no hard and fast rules. God, what a long way to go with no punch. It doesn't give you license to just shout out the first thing that springs to mind. It doesn't mean that everything you write is equally good because there's no rules, everything's relative, just do what you like. But there are no writing laws, only principles and norms. Eve envied the round, bulging stomachs of her sisters and cousins. Oh wait, what's this? A named character having specific feelings? A conflict? 
my one nitpick here, I, I feel like round bulging stomachs is saying the same thing twice. Make the stomachs either round or bulging, don't do both. But mainly, this is a much better sentence than anything that's come before. It's precise, it's human, it's not lost in all these vague generalities. It, it's still a little bit abstract, it's still talking about a, a, a general case of stomachs, I guess, maybe. But we're inside a character. We're feeling things that character says. We have access to their thoughts. And they're relatable things. Like, I care about this. Suddenly in this moment, what up until now has been a very anodyne general exercise in thinly sketched myth, comes clawing up out of the grave dirt, gasping for air. The story is alive. She wanted to feel that kick from inside. Each time her sister Lilith encouraged her to feel it kick, it felt like the baby kicked her directly in her flat stomach. Okay, so again, better, but too many repetitions of kick. She wanted to feel that kick from inside. Each time her sister Lilith encouraged her to feel it kick, it felt like the baby kicked, etc, etc. And there's a bit of a pronoun snarl about halfway through this sentence. Each time her sister Lilith encouraged her to feel it kick, it felt like. Two different senses of it there, feel it kick, and it felt like, which is sort of the jet, the it that we use when we say it is raining, right? Uh, and those two it's come close together, and then there's some hers as well. Her sister Lilith encouraged her to feel it kick. Um, you know, neither of those it's are defined until later in the sentence when we get to the baby so it's, none of that is incomprehensible it's not like i didn't understand what the sentence meant but it's a great example of how just fuzziness in a sentence slows it down and snags the reader's brain while we figure out what refers to what like most readers will experience that sentence as just being a little bit more treacly, like a little bit more hard work, a little more unlovely to read. Uh, uh, just a mental fatigue sets in if we hit too many of those sentences and the story isn't quite as fun to read. And these are things that few people can identify and point to as bad prose but I think they're important and I think the cumulative effect is the difference between a book that feels lovely and pain-free to read and, and flows we're not talking about fancy deathless prose we're not talking about baroque flowery analogies metaphors similes uh, $10 words that's not what I'm calling for here what I'm talking about is clarity what I'm talking about are sentences that don't feel like we're walking directly into the wind when we read them. I'm not sure either that the adverb directly adds anything here. Well, we're in the realm of directly. You, you said here, it felt like the baby kicked her directly in her flat stomach. How else is it? Indirectly in her flat in her flat stomach the baby <laughs> the baby kicked i mean I, I know it is i guess indirect because it's not literally kicking her in the stomach but it felt like what's the difference 
from in terms of our understanding of the sentence between it felt like the baby kicked her in her flat stomach and it felt like the baby kicked her directly in her flat how do you kick someone indirectly in the stomach like if you're jackie chan i guess you kick a chest of drawers and it flies across and hits them in the gut but that's not what's happening that would be i mean that would be an amazing scene if the baby <laughs> if the baby was able to do some kind of teleportation kick is this the story that the baby can focus its its chi and fire a kind of kick of pure psychic force to hit eve that would be a real left woods turn of the adam and eve story that actually lilith has been ostracized because she was going to give birth to the original legacy of humankind which were magical kung fu babies i mean i I would be on board for that, but I don't think that's what you're going for here. Also, repeating flat stomach two sentences after round bulging stomachs might be a bit over-egging the old belly pudding a bit. I get you don't need to repeat that term over and over. It just it's, it's a bit too much. We get it. She even yearned for the pain of childbirth, but giving birth was not in the stars for Eve. So as she grew older, she spent more time alone. So first sentence I'm totally happy with. She even yearned for the pain of pain of childbirth second one just passes into weird storybook time again now we're jumping into an indeterminate span of time suddenly it's as she grew older that might be weeks that might be months it might be years and then there's that cliche it was quote not in the stars which implies right that these people have a system of astrology and a belief in destiny as dictated by the stars rather than an interventionist god right or don't they i don't know but that's what it implies, and it's a cliche, and it just—I just don't like that. It's—it's—it's it's, it's a lazy writing. Eve forced a finger with the acacia stick against a wrist-wide baobab branch. While holding pressure, she moved back and forth at the rhythm of her breath. She faced west to see the sun sinking below the horizon. So a couple of tweaks here. Forced doesn't feel like the right verb you've forced a finger with the acacia stick um she's working the stick back and forth to create friction right i don't think you should have finger width and wrist wide in the same sentence either uh just you're not you're not giving us instructions to like we're not set designers you're not giving us instructions to like rebuild this you just want to imply it and allow the reader to do the heavy lifting and how they imagine it and i think this is too much uh, I think just take out forced and take out finger width and wrist wide. I, I'm glad that you're trying to be specific, but you have to pick your battles a little bit. And I, I think when you say stick, I imagine it being approximately finger wide. I don't think you ever say stick and someone imagines it being the size of someone's mi midriff or the width of a hair. Stick implies finger wide. I I For most people, I think. I don't think either of those terms add much to our understanding and they get in the way and they slow down the sentence. So she's working the stick back and forth down the length of the branch. We don't need the precise dimensions. And I don't feel like that fronted adverbial. Yes, it's one of those. So now, you know, while holding pressure feels good or makes much sense to me. I get where you're going with it, but it's clumsy. I like, however, to the rhythm of her breath, though you wrote 
at the rhythm of her breath. So I just change that one word, at becomes two. And the last sentence with the setting sun is simple, but it's vivid. I like it, right? We're there in a specific moment at sunset doing a thing, making fire. It's neat and real. And I like it, which is part of the reason I felt licensed, to be honest, about how much I didn't like what's come before because the issue is not quite clearly that you can't write engaging vivid scenes that appeal to our senses that aren't pretentious or overly wordy nor is it that you can't identify compelling character conflicts as in Eve's painful yearning for a child and this implied I might be reading too much into it using my outside knowledge of the story but an implied attraction between her and Adam as well uh, later on but like I think you accomplish both in a few simple sentences so the only issue here is not is that not every sentence you write is perfect which is true of every writer who's ever lived so all we have to do is delete the poor ones improve the usable ones and whoosh suddenly we go from a not very good not very engaging not totally comprehensible story to something that feels limber and confident and daring and moves with the swift purpose of a panther striding through the undergrowth when the dialogue starts in this extract I found it even more compelling. Does it hurt to make flame is a nice thematically resonant question. It's a, it's a it, I actually think that's a great opening piece of dialogue because it's kind of it's kind of believable. It's odd a bit surprising. It's yeah, I like that a lot actually. It's very simple but it's a lovely piece of dialogue. I, I like the not particularly hidden sexual subtext as Eve quickens her thrusts and there are these panting breaths and heat and then that flame breaking out they're literally smouldering because look in this moment and you describing this specific thing this making of fire we're in the narrative present in a specific detail rich scene where two people with needs are interacting in real time in a and, and one of them faces a clear conflict all of that is, is the bloody marrow within the bone of story. It is exactly what a book needs. And, and yes, before I get letters, of course you can step out into storybook mode. You can do big sweeping histories. Once upon a time, you can do an omniscient narrator. That's not what I'm saying. If you know what you're doing and it suits the story and you can pull it off, yes, you can not only get away with it, but you can do it in a way that makes the reader want to keep turning the page. But most writers can't pull those things off most stories don't want or need that style of writing and frankly if you can just skip to the meat of the story the living breathing drama you can show us some characters in a scene being people wanting stuff and then you say to the reader here these are my characters if you can do that why wouldn't you Maybe later on, you know, if you absolutely had to, you could zoom out and provide us with more context about where they are and how they got here. But we have no reason to care about those things until you've shown us characters we're invested in. So first off, just to summarise these principles, and I'm going to keep banging on about them until the sun winks out in the night sky. You don't see a sun in the night sky, do you? That was a poor metaphor, but here it is. Named character, problem, narrative present, engage our five senses, crunchy specificity. That's it. That's all you need for beautiful, glossy, dandruff-free hair. Right, those are my thoughts in their full horrifying totality. I hope that helped or at least 
didn't make the situation worse. If you like today's show and you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so thrice wise. First off, click one of the links in the show notes or else go online and buy my books. Those books being my novels, The Honours and The Ice House, and my new non-fiction book about anxiety and panic attacks, Coward, Why We Get Anxious and What We Can Do About It. I get to be a professional writer basically at the say-so and mercy of people like you choosing to buy my books so if you'd like to support my career and allow me to do something that i love continue doing that there and and get some neat reading material in return click the link buy for yourself buy for friends there are ebook and audiobook versions available as well as the physical ones secondly you can just directly toss a few beans into my e-guitar case by going to my coffee page that's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare and it helps to keep the lights on and cover hosting costs for doing the podcast. The link for that is in the show notes OC. Finally, it costeth nothing, but you can share your favourite episodes of the podcast online, tell people about it, post links. Right, that's it. Phew, we are done. Be well, be swell. If you want to join up to the Death of a Thousand Cuts Discord, remember there's a link for that as well in the show notes of today's episode is there anything that isn't in the show notes of today's episode by the way some people then say tim what are the show notes they're just they're just the podcast description they're just the bit underneath the podcast that has a description of it that's the show notes i call it the show notes because it sounds fancy um i'd love to see you there on the discord you, you could lurk if you feel a bit shy or if it's not for you you don't have to it's just there if you want it. Um, I'm going now to get some fresh air because the room I'm recording in is absolutely sweltering. Take care of yourself and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing. <laughs>